welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zidnick. You know when you meet someone and you just have that really great vibe and after a short conversation you've worked out whether or not you'd actually like to work with them and you know whether they will probably get you or not and well this is what our topic is about today. I met Ben Wickham at a conference in Brussels earlier this European summer. It was the EACD Summit and the IABC Amina region was an event partner, I believe. And Ben and I were sitting next to each other and we just got chatting. I chat to random people. And Ben is a fellow comms person and a storyteller and specialist in organisational behaviour and team dynamics. He was there in Brussels from Utrecht in the Netherlands And I'm really, really pleased that today we get to talk with Ben and delve a little bit more into this whole idea of storytelling, organisational behaviour and team dynamics. So welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And Ben, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? I'm sure that you can do better justice to your background and intro and, and how you ended up being at the conference as well. Yeah, I, I just to go back to what you were saying, in my head, when you talked about, you know, sometimes when you just sit next to someone and start talking to them and da 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 da, da I thought you were then going to say, and that's when I met Ben. And I had this amazing kind of click in chemistry. So I was a, in my head, you were going somewhere completely different with the introduction, but it was very nice. I, I, I did enjoy it. So indeed, my name is Ben Wickham and I'm a storyteller and I work with systems and organizational behavior and team dynamics. And I'm originally from uh, London in the UK, but escaped about 18 years ago and now live over here in the Netherlands and, and work sort of internationally with, with clients. And I was down in Brussels because I was invited to uh, speak on a topic and I had pretty much free reign. I had to submit some ideas and uh, the EACD were, I think, familiar with some of the work that I was doing with organisational development and with team dynamics and wanted me to sort of introduce some, some topics there. So when I was down there, we, I created this session called Making Faster, Better, uh, Smarter Decisions, which is all around this idea. Well, there's a lot of different kind of things that, that come together in that, but, but all around this idea that sometimes we, we just seem to overcomplicate life and we seem to overcomplicate so many things. And as you touched on so beautifully, I think in your introduction, sometimes you just meet someone and there's a click And what I am exploring and have been for the last few years is that little moment you have with another human being, and we call it chemistry, we call it all sorts of things. What would happen if we could proactively explore that and use that in business? In other words, that sort of primal sense we have of meeting someone and thinking, are they friend or foe? That's somatics. It's about using our body. And the beautiful thing is when we start using our bodies to explore things within business, whether that's communications, whether it's decision making, whether that's strategy or HR or or OD, it doesn't matter. You know more than you know that you know. But very often that information doesn't sit in the kind of cognitive conscious brain that we're familiar with. It sits in our bodies. It sits somewhere else. Uh, So I was told to someone the other day who had suffered burnout about three months before they had this burnout, 
every time they went to the station to go to work, their whole body started shaking and crying. And they didn't know why. It was only three months later they realised. So our bodies have this ability to hold on to experiences, to sense things, to, to keep, well, to quote a uh, quite a famous Dutch book on trauma, you know, the body keeps the score. And what would happen if we could ex- explore and apply that in business? And that's what I'm starting, or that's what I've been exploring these last few years. And uh, the Germans have a great word for it, Bauchgefühl, which is like the stomach feeling. And I completely know what you're talking about, Ben. As a physiotherapist, I saw on a daily basis with my clients, and this is obviously a long time ago, but that interaction between someone's mental frame of mind and the physical symptoms and their physicality. Can we delve a little bit more in? Because I know you probably, I'm timing how long it's going to take until you remind me that I actually didn't make it to your session. But if you could... And, and for our listeners, Ben's patiently looking at me. If we could delve a little bit more into that topic, I would love to hear more. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's probably only about two years worth of teasing and abuse for not turning up to my <laughs> sessions. So we're, we're, about, we're about six months in. So you're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> no, I, I could talk about this forever. So, you know, we want to try and keep this down to 20 minutes, but, you know, we could be here in three hours' time. So uh, one of the fascinating things uh, I discovered, and I, I love reading and, and picking things up. I'm a, I'm a creative director and filmmaker in my previous life. And, I, and someone asked me once about what, what is creativity? And I said, it's, it's the ability just to pick up random pieces of information and, and connect them in a new way. And so I, I'm constantly exploring and connecting and thinking of things and it drives my family nuts. But one of the things I, I discovered was uh, the most expensive item most people own is their their house and the average time it takes from walking into a new property to deciding to buy it is less than eight minutes in other words the most expensive thing you buy takes you less than eight minutes you spend more time choosing a washing machine or in my wife's case what to wear in the morning uh, than you do in buying a house So what is that about? Why is that? How does that work? And I started exploring this. And of course, what we are used to, especially in the West, especially sort of post-Enlightenment, is this, I think and therefore I am. And the Enlightenment was incredibly important uh, for Europe in stopping these uh, religious wars which were kind of destroying uh, the continent and the Enlightenment gave us some phenomenal advancements in medicine, in science, in research, in development, in, in a whole raft of things. But the pendulum has swung so far that it's kind of created this very individualistic, selfish, selfie society where we have become disconnected from, to some extent, ourselves. We've become disconnected from community. We've become disconnected from uh, these relationships we have. And by definition, we are a herd animal. We are not meant to be on our own. To be on our own as a, as, as a species is, is tantamount to death. Uh, we cannot survive on our own. And what our businesses have done, what our organisations have done, what we have done is kind of have developed this I and this thinking approach. So everything is about me and everything is about logic. It's a spreadsheet-based society. What does the analysis say? And so when my father started in in banking many, 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 many years ago, he would give mortgages or lend money to businesses based on the relationship he had 
with the person coming into the business. Nowadays, uh, relationship is gone and it's all about what the computer says. Computer says yes or computer says no. And your personal circumstances, your relationship with people is always secondary to that. But the opposite of analysis, the opposite of looking at data and being able to make a decision, the opposite of that is a word called phenomenology. And where analysis is zooming in, phenomenology is zooming out and just letting what is there hit us in the face. And it's something as human beings we do on a daily basis. There were four or 500 people at that conference. Uh, you and I happened to sit each opposite each other, uh, Monique, and there was just a, a sparkle. There was just something there. Now, we could do a full-on analysis of psychotherapy and exploring our family histories, and we would discover some logical reason why there's that connection. But that would take us weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months. Or we just trust our instinct and go, what is there? Oh, there's something. Let's explore it and see where it goes. We do that on a daily basis. When you walk into a meeting and go, oh, this feels a bit strange, that's phenomenology. There's no logic for it. You're not being presented with pages and pages of data. When you buy a house and think, I want this house, that's phenomenology. So we are using these two skills, analysis and phenomenology, all the time. I want my doctor to, if I'm unwell, to be completely analytical. I want every single blood test and scan known to man to determine what is wrong with me. But at the end of the day, if the doctor turns around and says, well, they all look fine, I want him or her to also be phenomenological, to look at me and go, yeah, but I still don't think that's quite right. I want to do some more tests. And we we have swapped, we, we, the pendulum has swung so far into this kind of I think society that we have let go of the we feel. And to some extent during COVID, that we thing came back. And, and that's a great, one of the great gifts of COVID, I think, if we can put it that way, if that's not too insensitive, is this uh, sense of community, this sense of we are all in this together. But we need to allow feelings back in to business because we're at a time in history when everything is so crazy, so fast, so busy. We don't always have time to analyze everything. Sometimes we just need to go, you know what, this feels right, we're gonna try it and see what happens. So how does that work from a communications and business perspective? Because I know a lot of the clients and leaders that I work with, it's about numbers, as you said, and about the facts. How do we apply that in a communications or a business world, that sort of sense of we feel and going with the bauch gefühl or the, the feeling instead of, what is logically on paper? And is that enough of a, a reason to make a decision? I think one of the models, uh, we touched on this before, I, I'm a storyteller and every story has a, has a crucible. It has a bowl within which the story takes place. And the crucible of this story takes place at a point in, in history where we are between what used to be and what is going to be. In other words, what has uh, the world as we know it in the last five years has changed dramatically with COVID, with populist politics, with now two wars pulling countries and people in different directions with the massive financial ramifications and implications of that. 
we're in this point where we don't know what the future is going to look like. There is a certainty, if there was any, has completely gone out the window. So we're in this no man's land. We're in this, this land between the world we used to know, where there was a certain structure to it, the rights and wrong of that can be debated, versus the world that we're emerging into, where we simply don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know the impact of AI. We don't know the impact of China. We don't know the impact of the American elections in two years' time. We don't know what's going to happen with China and Ukraine. We certainly don't know what's going to happen in, in the Middle East at the moment. So we're in this, this space of what the change specialist and uh, grief specialist, William Bridges, calls the desert between what was and what is coming. And it's a no man's land. Now, the beautiful thing about the desert is a place of absolute creativity and innovation. But there isn't necessarily the time that our logical analytical thinking requires in order to test everything. It is a time to simply say, what would happen if we were to combine HR and comms? What would happen if we were to, instead of doing it this way, try something completely new? And that can only be done on, uh, it's not even intuition. Uh, Intuition is more of a reactive thing. Phenomenology is more of a, what is there, what is coming at us? So what does that look like? Well, let's say uh, you're a comms professional and you have three different scenarios for your up and coming strategy or three different scenarios, should we say, for a town hall. Scenario one, two, and three. Now, you can do research and data analysis and all sorts of things on those three options that you have, and they could be options for anything. The other thing you do is you simply go option one on a bit of paper, option two on a bit of paper, option three on a bit of paper. Option one is this, option two is this, and option three is this. Then you look at those bits of paper, and you can put your hand on it, you can stand on it, and you go, which of these feels, has the most energy? Which of these feels like it's buzzing? Which of these feels fizzy or exciting or dynamic? And then you make a decision based purely on that. It's a decision based on a feeling. It may sound strange. All we are simply doing is proactively using that phenomenology to go, which of these feels right? A friend of mine who uses this a lot when he has to make decisions on, for example, strategies, and he'll be presented with two strategies, and he'll simply flick through them and go, it's this one or it's this one. Now, you can't necessarily back that up with numbers. But we're in a world where it's try crazy, fail fast, reiterate, move on. And we don't have time to analyze everything. We are in a period of maximum innovation and creativity, which is fantastic. But we're also in a period of maximum fear and uncertainty. So, Ben, if we can come back to the the comm side of things, beyond, say, choosing a strategy, how would you maybe work with that on a more ongoing basis? Is it restricted to the leaders making the decision or is it something that would be encouraged throughout the team? Or I, I guess how would you, as a manager, make sure that your team were making the right decisions? I, I know some yeah, of I, people I know have got really crazy decision-making abilities and I, I prefer when they go for the logic option. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like the, the doctor I talked about earlier. It's not either or, it's always both out. It's not that we need the pendulum to swing all the way from I think to we feel or I feel. We, we need both. We need analysis. Of course we do, but we also need this phenomenology. You know, unless there are 
certified psychopaths in your team, everybody has the skill of phenomenology. Assuming you have friends, assuming you've met someone and fallen in love, assuming you've bought a house or just thought, I want to have that or like that, then you have phenomenological skills. Sometimes it's just a case of, you know what, we're going to go with blue or we're going to go with pink or we're going to go with green. And you use that phenomenology. The important thing is to if you're going to use it in the office, and, and I, when I work with clients, I, I teach them these, some of these basic skills, is you've always got to have options. So you can't just go, you know what, we're going to rebrand all our internal communications, bright pink, and we're going to come up with this slogan. No, have two or three slogans, have two or three options, have two or three strategies, and then look at them. Put them on the floor, write them on a bit of paper, and just say, which of these feels good? Which of these gives me a buzz? Which of these gives me a sensation? I do this in uh, workshops uh, where I have people to make decisions based on A, B, and C. They don't know what they're choosing. They just have to stand on a bit of paper. I do this regularly with, with teams that have never thought about it before. And just intuitively, they go, no, it's got to be this one. It's definitely this one. I do it when I'm working with clients to define purpose or story or strategy. So have options. Look at those options and just let what's there come at you and just think, is it that one? Is it number one? Is it number two and number three? And just see and then test it and try it and just go down that road and see what happens. You don't need, we need to get away from this idea of computer says yes or computer says no. You are, a, your body knows more than you know that you know. So just trust what your body might be saying to you and go with it. Thanks, Ben. And where does the systemic organisational storytelling come from? How does that fit in? Well, it's funny. It's one of those names you come up with to try and initially to kind of combine my two passions, which are storytelling. I love stories. I love telling stories. I love writing stories. And my deep passion in, in systemic work, part of which is somatics, this sense of feeling. And systemic work is really about looking at the whole and, and understanding of your background in physio, you'll get this. And, you know, if you go to the doctor with a headache, they give you uh, paracetamol to make the headache go away. If you go to a physio or a chiropractor, they'll go, well, actually, your hips are not quite aligned. If we align them, the headache will go. So one is about treating pain and one is about uh, treating symptoms. Or So one is about treating symptoms, one is about treating the cause. And, and systemic work is about identifying the cause of challenges and behaviours and patterns of behaviour and dynamics in teams and organisations. And systemic storytelling in a way came about because the Romans had a god for all of this. They had a god for, for change, which was the god Janus. One face looking forward and one face looking back. So systemic storytelling is essentially a way of combining that kind of belief. If you want to tell a new story, you have to embrace the old all the stories you've told, the patterns of behavior and understand where those patterns are holding you back as an individual, as a team or as an organization. And we have to tell a new story for the future. There's no single human achievement that we have ever done on Lost Planet, which has not started with a story. Do you have a example that springs to mind of maybe a challenge or a story that you, you've been working on with a client and you took a holistic view of it and how how that worked? Yeah, I'd be a bit careful. I, I worked with an organisation uh, in the last two years and I was brought in to work on their purpose and story. But during the conversations, a few things became apparent. And that was apparent to me because of what I'd heard, but also because of what I 
experience, what, what I let phenomenologically just come at me and experience. And one of the things I, I noticed was this uh, organization had a phenomenal startup energy. So they were saying yes to every job that came in. Even if someone in the office was going, I don't think we're going to get paid for this job. They were saying, no, 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 we're going to do it. This is a fantastic job. We've got to do this. This is really good for us. If we're not doing this, someone else will do it. We'll lose our position. Uh, they were working 24-7. They had people actually losing their life at the front end of what they were doing. And when they were asked what happened, the response from the people on the ground was, yeah, but we're doing this for the client. It's all about the client. Now, that's the kind of energy you need in a startup of any organization. Perhaps not to the point of death, but you need that kind of 24-7 buzz. This is all about the client. We just say yes to everything. Go, 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 go. The challenge for this organization was it was 150 years old and employed 9,000 people worldwide. So that is a great example of you can tell a new story about what you want to be, but you can't ignore the old story. And that pattern of behavior served the organization phenomenally well up until a point, but it is now constricting them. It is holding them back. It is damaging the business financially. It is damaging the well-being of employees. It's damaging the life of some employees all because of this startup energy they have. And what I try to do using both analysis, what's the data, what's the evidence, what are we seeing, but also phenomenology, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? What am I sensing here? What's, what's happening? To make sure that they can not only tell a new story, but they can also bring that story to life and overcome the patterns and the dynamics that are holding them back as a business. And you see those same patterns in teams. I have another organization which has had four CEOs in four years. Now, that's not normal. It's a lot of turnover. Yeah. So what's happening there? What, what's that about? What, what is, is there? The question is, why would that behavior make sense? Or, or even better, if that behavior was to make perfect sense, what sense would it make? So what's going on there? That's not logical. That's illogical. So what? is happening and what pattern of behavior is being repeated that every time someone comes in they then leave within a year and does changing the story change the behavior what's the interrelation there <laughs> well that's a very good question um no in a sense no i think yes and no so what a story does is a story is a way of making sense of something. As human beings, we love fiction. We prefer fiction over fact. In, in fact, our brains actually filter out any piece of factual information that contradicts our own story we've told ourselves. So a new story for an organisation, typically where I come in is either at a team organisation level to create that new narrative. What's our purpose and what does that story look like? That's a very big story. It's a very big story that holds the past, the present, the future... And within it, it contains all the strands, if you like, of DNA around behavior, values, guiding principles, all those kind of little elements which get worked on within that narrative and then get developed. What you're seeing in behavior is related not so much to the future story, but it's related to that past story. It's the God Janus looking in the other direction because most of our behavior today is connected to our core beliefs. And those core beliefs 
at a basic family level are established between naught to four years old at a work ethic level are established within our first jobs so if you want to change behavior and i i'm just work discussing now working with a client to do exactly that to they've done a rebrand they've done a merger they've done a rebrand they've got a new story that's all in place the question now is how do we bring the new behaviors to life that's about Working at an individual and team level, understanding how are my core beliefs impacting my behavior today? How does my reptilian and my primal brain impact my behavior today? And how can I become conscious about that and make choices about behaving in a different way? We, we are all caught up in patterns, dynamics and entanglements, which stem from our childhood and depending on your systemic view from two or three generations before. And we could spend another half hour talking about epigenetics and some of the research that's coming out of Zurich on trauma that's inherited in mice. But that's probably for another podcast. And in terms of if we just um, delve a little bit more deeply into the behaviours, does articulating the desired behaviour, I mean, obviously that needs to fit into the story as well, the new story. Does articulating it go some way to the change? Or yes, it does. Absolutely. There are other elements there that need that can help push it along to to get no, as you said into the future and where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both and. I I think it's really important to uh, organisations are very good at creating a lot of fluff and none of it actually makes any sense and there's no point doing half of it. There is an absolute need for blinding clarity, and I'm a great believer in clarity. Stories bring clarity. They make sense. I understand why I am in I am in it because of this thing called neuromirroring. I can actually put myself in this story and imagine what it will be like for me. Part of that is being absolutely crystal clear around things like what are the behaviors that we expect? What do we want from each other? What do we want from our clients and what do our clients expect from us? And that's sometimes just basic contracting. So I think making those explicit is really, really important. The mistake I think we make, and possibly even as commerce professionals make, is we think that once we've made them clear, it's then just a case of doing it. Uh, So if one of the behaviours is we're going to stop saying no but, and we're going to start saying yes and. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, that's a really nice behaviour change you might want to see. Let's, let's open up space for innovation and new ideas and creativity, which is brilliant. But if you're dealing with a, a team leader who has only ever experienced in his or her life, no but organisations, who has grown up in a family where no but <laughs> was the default, then having a poster that simply says, we're going to be a yes and organisation won't make any difference to how he or she behaves unless we can consciously connect how I behave today with my experiences in childhood potentially my experiences of my grandparents and connect that to what it is I want and unless we can explore that and have the guts to say or or have the authentic conversation around well actually I find yes and a very difficult thing to do I would like to explore why why that is because I like the sentiment of it but I can't do it because the pattern, like this organization with this startup thing, we may want to aspire to that, but we're so entrenched in this pattern and it's a survival pattern. These exist for our survival. They exist for our benefit. We're so entrenched in this pattern of behavior, we could never hope to step to that. When I moved to the Netherlands, I was thinking, right, I'm going to come to the Netherlands and I'm going to be a whole new person. I can reinvent myself 
completely. Uh, of course, it never happened because I am so pre-programmed by my own experiences. It's only when you go back and look at them and look at them face to face and go, ah, okay, that's why I behave like that. Okay, now I'm conscious of it. Now I can become competent at overcoming that. So you have to make them explicit and you have to allow space for people to understand how their core beliefs may be contradictory to those new behaviours and what that means for them and how we can create safe space for those leaders to go, okay, I want to, I aspire to that behaviour, but I find it very difficult. How can I look to the past so I could reimagine the future? So maybe leadership training, there would be something to think about in, in relation to, say, a broader behavioural change comms. I think it has to. I use the leadership circle a lot in the work that I do, both at individual level and a team level, because that really connects behaviour to core belief. And so often we are, 70% of adults are reactive in their behaviours. In other words, they're making decisions as an adult, which take away the fear and the pain that I feel, rather than creating a better outcome for the team organisation I'm a part of. So 70% of adults are like that. We can probably assume 70% of leaders are reactive in their decision making. Understanding that, where that reactivity comes from and why it's there and that it has a legitimate place is often step one in behaviour change. So there's something for ourselves as comm professionals and leaders to stop and look at our own behaviours and patterns and then obviously to be supporting and working with our teams as well to in a psychologically safe environment to help yeah. and encourage them to reflect on behaviour changes do you have any other tips for our listeners, Ben? Anything that springs to mind about what they can take back to their workplace? For me, one of my key learnings is that although analytical decision-making is great, that I should always be conscious of incorporating or leaving room for that, I can't even say the word now, phenomenic, is that correct? Phenomenology. Phenomenon. <laughs> from the Greek phenomenon. Phenomenology. Letting what is there come at us. Like, I think it's, uh, we live in a very practical world where we have to pick up kids from school, we have to have quarterly results, we have deadlines, we have team meetings, we have reviews, we have 360s. And this can sound quite far removed from that day-to-day -day practical life. I think when I work with a team, I introduce these themes very gradually. And I just remind people that before anything else, you're a human being. And this is not magic. It's not supernatural. It's not anything other than an intrinsically human skill. And I think in our current climate, it really helps us to be curious about our own humanity. And what happens when we bring our whole selves to the office? What happens when we, rather than just having phenomenology or phenomenological experiences for buying a house or meeting a new friend or finding someone to f that we fall in love with and end up marrying and having children with or whatever you like to do with that person. We actually think, well, what would happen if that was brought into my workplace in different ways? If instead of just going, oh crap, I've got to get this 
thing done. I've got five hours to read this report and make a decision. If you just go, okay, well, there's one, two, and three, or one, two, three, and four, or one and two, which one feels right? So I think it's just being curious. I think that's really important. Letting, uh, remember, your body knows more than you know that it knows. So trusting what your body says and what your body senses and what your body experiences. And be open to a little bit of mystery and a little bit of daring. Just test it and just see what would happen if I tested this in the workplace. And of course, it's very hard to explain it in a podcast and in an online, in a session or in a workshop. Of course, it's much easier because we can physically do things. But I have yet to work with any client in the last six years I've been doing this who has not been able to apply this directly to their work within a couple of hours and gone, okay, this really is fascinating. And of course, it makes decision-making so much faster. Thank you so much, Ben, for your time and for sharing all of your insights with our listeners. Is it okay if they reach out to you on LinkedIn if they've got comments? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, and also if I'm wrong, or as I said, I'm always rethinking things and I'm always reimagining and I always love to be proved wrong or contradicted. And I'd love to continue this conversation because this is world work. This is about human beings being human. And uh, oh God, that sounds cheesy, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, So yeah, you know, yeah. I can't really answer questions in less than 54 sentences, can I? So the answer to that question is, Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I loved it.